Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. So tonight's story is out of 1923, about a young black man from Northeast Ohio, a talented high school football player recruited to play at an out-of-state university. He died from injuries sustained in his first major college game. The nearly century-old mystery in this tale is about his cause of death, and researchers who have questioned whether his brutal injuries were accidental or constituted murder at a time when it wasn't unusual for athletes to manhandle opponents of color. His name was Jack Trice, and you'll find it in huge letters on the Iowa State University football stadium, which was named for him. An author named Dorothy Schweider wrote an article called The Life and Legacy of Jack Trice for the State Historical Society of Iowa, and she collected a lot of rich detail about Jack's life. Much of this episode is owed to her work. Jack Trice, his first name was John, but only his mom called him that, was born in 1902, the only child of Anna and Green Trice. All four of his grandparents had been slaves, and well after the Civil War, In the late 1800s, the family settled near Hiram, Ohio, in Portage County. Jack grew up on a farm. His dad worked as a farmhand until he saved enough money to buy his own small plot. While Ohio certainly carried its share of racial prejudice in the day, the color line lessened the further north you went. And in northeast Ohio, with a long history of abolitionism, the Trice family fared well. Dr. Gaylord Bates, a white boyhood friend of Jack's, told an interviewer in 1956 that he didn't think Jack experienced much prejudice. He described his friend as being fun and full of practical jokes, a regular at Sunday school and Boy Scout meetings, and a welcomed addition to parties where his race was never an issue with classmates and their parents. When it came time for high school, Jack's mother, by then a widow, sent him to live with relatives in Cleveland. She thought he had been too sheltered in Hiram and would benefit from living in a place that more closely resembled the world her son would face as an adult. He attended East Technical High School, where he excelled in the classroom and on the football field, where he was one of two black players. Jack stood over six feet tall and weighed 200 pounds, quite large for his day, and his high school described him as a powerhouse. A former teammate, Johnny Bame, would one day tell a reporter, no better tackle ever played high school ball in Cleveland. He had speed, strength, and smartness. Bame said he and Jack shared rooms on football trips. He said he also liked sitting next to Jack on train rides because the waiters, who were always black, would give Jack and his white companion double portions. In the summer between his high school years, Jack would return to his mother's home outside Hiram and got a job working on local roads. After graduation, he went to work for a construction company. And then, in 1922, he got an unexpected offer. His old high school coach, Sam Williman, was named head football coach at Iowa State. 
and Williman wanted to recruit the cream of the crop from back home in Cleveland. He invited a handful of players, including both Jack Trice and his buddy Johnny Bame, to come join him in Ames, Iowa, to play for the Cyclones. And off they went. When Jack arrived in Ames, he was one of just 22 black students among the 4,500 students enrolled in Iowa that year. Less than 1% of the entire state's population was black. And while the school had been admitting black students since the day it opened, there were barriers the community was not willing to cross. Black students were not permitted to live in the dormitories. The 21-year-old Jack found a janitorial job at a large office building in downtown Ames, and the custodial job came with accommodations. And he had to work. There was no such thing as an athletic scholarship in 1923. Back home in Ohio, Jack's mom took a job working at a mill in Ravenna to help contribute to his educational costs. Now, Jack knew his first year at school would be mostly one long practice session. College rules forbade freshmen from playing in games, so the freshmen always formed a junior varsity squad that scrimmaged with their own varsity players while waiting for their sophomore year to begin. Jack also concentrated on his studies. He picked animal husbandry as his major and talked about wanting to move south after graduation to work with black sharecroppers. In his freshman year, his grades averaged 90%, and school records called him one of the junior varsity's best performers. After his freshman year concluded, he returned to Ohio for the summer and worked for the state highway department. He also picked up a wife. He and Cora Mae Starland had been sweethearts for a while. I found one report that suggested they had eloped when Cora Mae was still underage, so they had to keep their marriage a secret for a while. But now they were openly married, and Cora Mae was with Jack as he went back to Iowa for his sophomore year. She enrolled in home economics classes at the college and took a job to help support them. And so that fall, Jack joined Iowa State's varsity football team, with much enthusiasm for his college football career to begin. There are a few things that I should put into perspective before we move on, so you understand why there was any debate at all about the play that is going to take Jack's life. In the 1920s, college football was a white man's game. There were only a handful of black men playing for colleges across the country, and there were many schools that would forfeit a game rather than play against a team that had a black man on the roster. For instance, the University of Missouri, which was on the schedule for later in the year, had written to Iowa to warn them they would forfeit if Trace was on the roster come game day. The Missouri athletic director wrote, The whole question is bigger than our athletics. We cannot permit a colored man on any team we play. And most teams accepted that if such a gauntlet was thrown down, the challenged team would bench its black players for that contest. They called it a gentleman's agreement. When they were permitted to play, black players faced extra risk on the field. If it wasn't dangerous enough that this was a violent game being played with leather helmets and insufficient body protection, 
it was not unheard of for teams to deal out extra vicious hits to black opponents. It's hard to know how much of this Jack understood, having been raised in communities where his race was less of an issue. Let me read from author Dorothy Schweider's article on this topic, and I'm quoting, Based on limited evidence, it seems that Trice got along well with his teammates, staff, and other students at Iowa State. At the same time, he seemed to be always circumspect in his relations with whites. One teammate recalled many years later that Jack had been cautious about his interactions with other students, holding back in social situations until others initiated conversation. One former teammate put it this way, Jack appreciated his status. Generally, he spoke only when spoken to. As far as I know, he was always a gentleman. Other former teammates stated that Jack was accepted by all the players and seemed to fit in well with the team. Bob Fisher, another teammate of Jack's, recalled many years later that Jack had no racial problems at Iowa State. As far as I know, he was just one of the fellows. There was no inkling of racism at the school. Of course, Schweider pointed out that these are perspectives from white students. We really don't know how Jack Trice saw it. After all, he was the guy who wasn't allowed to live on campus because of his skin color. The first game of the season was against Simpson College, a small school, and won so easily they kind of considered it a scrimmage. The first real contest in Jack Trice's college football career was going to be the second game against the University of Minnesota. Iowa's Cyclones were the clear underdogs. Minnesota's Gophers had a fierce reputation, one of the top squads in the Midwest, and they always had a big, ravenous crowd at their games. Iowa's team arrived in Minneapolis on Friday, October the 5th, 1923, and the players were checked into the old Curtis Hotel. Jack was told he wasn't allowed to room with a white teammate, so he was given his own room. He also wasn't allowed to dine with them. In Minnesota, the color line was firmly in place. The Ku Klux Klan was on the rise. They even entered a float in the college's homecoming parade and ran a Klan leader for Minneapolis mayor. As a matter of fact, the weekend Iowa arrived to play football, the Klan was holding a statewide convention in St. Paul. The night before the game, stuck in his room alone, Jack found some hotel stationery, picked up a pen, and wrote something that seemed prophetic. He wrote, To whom it may concern, my thoughts just before the first real college game of my life, the honor of my race, family, and self are at stake. Everyone is expecting me to do big things. I will. My whole body and soul are to be thrown recklessly about on the field tomorrow. Every time the ball is snapped, I will be trying to do more than my part. On all defensive plays, I must break through the opponent's line and stop the play in their territory. Beware of mass interference. Fight low with your eyes open and toward the play. Roll block the interference. Watch out for cross bucks and reverse end runs. Be on your toes every minute if you expect to make good. 
Jack dated this note and put the time on it, 7.45. Saturday was a beautiful autumn day, perfect for football. The gates at Northrop Field opened at 1 p.m., and the first of 11,000 fans began to arrive. When the game began an hour and a half later, Jack Trice was the only black man on the field. Back in Ames, Iowa, his wife, Cora May, took a streetcar to the campus and joined fans who paid a quarter to watch the game on something called a grid graph. It was sort of an electronic scoreboard that reproduced the game's progress on a signboard. Here's the game in a nutshell. On the second play of the game, Jack hurt his shoulder. Bad. He wouldn't know the extent of it till later, but he had broken his collarbone. He refused to leave the game. By halftime, the score was tied 7-7. Iowa fans were crazy excited that they were holding their own with this tough Minnesota squad. In the third quarter, Jack did what was called a rolling block, a move so dangerous it would eventually be banned. It called for him to throw himself horizontally in front of the tackle. Now, ideally, you are then supposed to end on all fours so you can hop back up. But Jack ended up on his back, and a series of Minnesota players trampled over the soft flesh of his belly. He was carried off the field by his teammates and taken to a Minneapolis hospital while the cyclone stayed behind and finished losing the game by a very close 20-17. to 17. Jack was released from the hospital after a few hours and cleared to return home. The next morning, he joined his teammates on the train back to Ames. But clearly, he wasn't okay. Monday morning, he was back in the hospital in terrible pain and diagnosed with internal bleeding. His medical team thought surgery was too risky, but apparently the bigger risk was not trying because by mid-afternoon, Jack Trice was dead. The cause of death was listed as traumatic periantitis. It's fair to say that Iowa State, in general, was grief-stricken. The following day, classes at the school were suspended, and for his funeral, thousands gathered to pay tribute to Jack, the only Iowa athlete to ever die from a game. His teammates carried his gray casket. It was purchased with more than $2,200 that had been collected to pay for funeral expenses and to ship his body back to Ohio for burial next to his father. There was even enough money left over to help Jack's mom pay off the mortgage she had taken out on her house to help with his schooling. At the service, college president Raymond Pearson revealed the note Jack had written alone in his hotel room. The note had been found in his pocket. Jack's mother later wrote to President Pearson, thanking college officials for their kindness. She added, If there is anything in the life of John Trice and his career that will be an inspiration to the colored students who come to Ames, he has not lived and died in vain. But, Mr. President, while I am proud of his honors, he was all I had, and I am old and alone. The future is dreary and lonesome. The University of Minnesota president, Lotus Kaufman, wrote a condolence letter to his contemporary in Iowa. 
and in it he said the fatal play had taken right in front of him, and he wanted to assure everyone the players had not piled up on Trice. Historians aren't so sure. Obviously, there is no way to prove it. In the 1920s, football was an especially rough game, and there was never an official inquiry into his death. But there are many who believe Trice, who was obviously treated differently than any other player off the field, was handled differently on the field as well. Some reports stated that Jack had been intentionally trampled. Some spectators reported that he had been stomped viciously and even bitten. There were reports of some witnesses calling it outright murder. Others argued that if Trice had been targeted for unnecessary roughness, it could have been because they wanted to take out a good player, not necessarily a black player. And still others denied that anyone intentionally injured him. One of his fellow Iowa State teammates, Harry Schmidt, said in a 1973 interview that it was just unfortunate that when Jack fell during that roll block that he ended on his back instead of his stomach, all it would take is one good unintentional foot and the soft flesh of his belly to do the internal damage that was done. And that Cleveland buddy who had joined Jack in Iowa, Johnny Bame, he told reporters he didn't think the trampling was intentional. In time, the question faded into history, as did Trice. But then, decades later, the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s unearthed the old story. And in Iowa, Trice became a legend. Students and professors campaigned for more than two decades to rename the college stadium in his honor. And in 1997, the school did just that. The Iowa Cyclones play at Jack Trice Stadium. At the naming ceremony, Iowa State President Martin Jischke said, It is clear that Jack Trice, for a large majority of students and others associated with Iowa State University, exemplifies a number of heroic qualities, including determination, courage, enthusiasm, and giving one's all to an important cause. He has become a hero, not so much for what he accomplished because his life was cut short, but for what he represented. I also found mention that in 1988, some 65 years after Jack Trice's death, Iowa State students commissioned a sculpture of him, and Jack's widow wrote a letter thanking them. Here's what Cora May wrote. Jack's passing was a great shock to me. He was my first love, and I have many beautiful memories of him and our short life together. The night that he was leaving for Minnesota with his coach, he came to tell me goodbye. We kissed and hugged, and he told me that he would come back to me as soon as he could. The day of the game, I was on campus. I heard it announced that he had been injured. I stood and bowed my head, and then I heard that he walked from the field. I felt somewhat relieved. Monday noon, I was in the cafeteria. His fraternity brother, Mr. Harold Tutt, came to me and said I was to go to the campus hospital. I did. When I saw him, I said, hello, darling. He looked at me, but never spoke. I remember hearing the campus clock chime three o'clock. 
That was October the 8th, 1923, and he was gone. Again, credit to the research in this story, to that Dorothy Schweider story, and to Ohio Mysteries listener Michael Bonanno for calling our attention to it. Oh, great story, naming a stadium after him, and him, you know, his story never dies. Uh, what hit me right away was when you were talking about how his grandparents were slaves. It's just not that long ago, you know. When we were learning about it in school, it just seemed like that was forever ago. But when you think about it, it's really not that long ago. It really isn't. Mm-hmm. No, it really isn't. And, you know, I was telling this story to a friend who played football in college, and he thought it was really interesting that when Jack wrote that letter, which is just legend in state, a lot of the students probably know the first two lines of it by heart, He started it by saying, to whom it may concern. And he was really struck by that. Like, who was he writing for? You know, what did he think was going to happen? It just really was, it wasn't like a diary. You know, it was like on hotel stationery, sort of like a postcard. Right, whoever reads this. And it's like, why did he think some anonymous person was going to be looking at this that he addressed it so anonymously? It was really, really interesting. Yes, just just great stuff. I, I love stories like this. I love stories about, you know, people who overcome, you know, and uh, go to college as a black man back in the 20s. I mean, that's just... And that his story, I mean, his story literally disappeared for like four, four or five decades. And then it came back. And then a new generation learned about him and could be inspired by him. And I love that. I love that it just, you know, it rose out of the ashes and became this force for good at Iowa State. That's right. And another lesson for any of you small uh, football players out there, only hit what you can see. Do not do to the rolling blocks. That's very dangerous. (laughs) Exactly. That's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.